would uh, take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 819. Last Sunday, we had uh, finished Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had compared the kingdom to treasure uh, hidden in a field. The value of Jesus' kingdom surpasses all other treasures. And our joy in the kingdom leads to great sacrifice for the kingdom. Also, from the riches of understanding the kingdom, which is given to his disciples, uh, they can help others see God's plan to save. From the old and the new, uh, we can teach others how God redeems through Jesus. But this is not how everybody receives the kingdom. Uh, Some harden their hearts, some refuse to treasure Jesus, some continue to oppose his kingdoms, and that's what we encounter today. Jesus will face opposition from fellow Jews in his hometown, and John the Baptist will face opposition from people in high places. In both stories, though, we're reminded of an important lesson. Treasuring the truth of the kingdom will invite hostility. Treasuring the truth of the kingdom will invite hostility. Let's read God's word together, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, that is to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, 
Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Treasuring the truth of the kingdom will invite hostility. Jesus had warned his disciples about this earlier in chapter 10, but we're seeing it here play out in the life of Jesus and John. These two stories build on the rising opposition against Jesus and those who belong to his kingdom. Eventually, it will reach the height of crucifying the Lord himself. But the hatred is already building even among those who grew up with Jesus. So in the first scene, we find Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that that's where Jesus grew up and became strong and filled with wisdom. Matthew tells us that Jesus would would teach in their synagogue and, and, and he would do so in a way that would leave the people astonished. That's what verse 54 says. Which is a shorter way of repeating what he said earlier, right after the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember this. In chapter 7, verse 28, the crowds, it says, were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So this amazement that people are experiencing isn't due to Jesus' rhetorical flourish, but to his commanding grasp of the scriptures. You know, most scribes built their teaching on the so-called experts of their day. Jesus is his own authority. You know, he would say things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. What authority? Do you ever feel this way when you are reading Jesus' words? Does he leave you astonished? How many times have you said things like, I would have never seen that in the Old Testament had it not been for Jesus? Amazement is a good thing. What's not good is trading that amazement for skepticism of Jesus. Listen to the questions in verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now in one sense, it's questions like this that remind us of Jesus' true humanity. Right? Some in church history have tried to deny Jesus' humanity. That was an early heresy called docetism. The idea that Jesus' body was just mere semblance. But listen to to those who grew up with him. There wasn't a doubt in their minds that he was human. That's part of what's given them a struggle, right? What they have trouble grasping is the source of his authority and power. How is he, as truly man, able to teach this way, heal this way? Isn't he just like us? But what seems initially like mere curiosity turns into a deeper skepticism that becomes evident in verse 57. 
It says that they took offense at him. Now, the verb here is where we get our word scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus, which reminds us of Isaiah's prophecy, right? It expected, Isaiah 28, verse 16, expected God to lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But the scriptures also tell us that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This same word appears in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 6, where Jesus told John the Baptist, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who is not scandalized by me. Thankfully, we find John the Baptist staying the course. But not these people. Jesus' own hometown rejects him. Jesus experiences the same opposition that Jeremiah once faced. You remember Jeremiah. He was the prophet from Anathoth. And if you keep reading Jeremiah's prophecy, the Lord says that it's the people of Anathoth who hate him and want him dead. And so like Jeremiah, Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. The disciples need to know that Jesus' rejection isn't coming as a surprise. This is how Israel has repeatedly treated their prophets. Now, we might ask, what offended them so much? You know, why, why are they so bothered by Jesus? Well, Luke chapter 4 gives us a great example. And it's a great example because Jesus is in a synagogue. It's a synagogue in Nazareth. And we actually get to hear some of what he's teaching in Nazareth. So this would be an example. Right, so Luke 4, Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. All is good. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. They all marvel. They even speak well of Jesus, Luke tells us. Until he addresses their pride in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian. And then Luke tells us, so they go from marveling at Jesus, speaking well of Jesus, Luke tells us that when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. For them... Israel was first. Israel was entitled to God's blessing. Israel was better than those sinful Gentiles. But Jesus says, not so fast. God turned to the Gentiles when Israel rejected his saving purpose, and he'll do it again. You're no better off. You're no more deserving than of God's mercy. The gospel says that in your sins, you're just like them. 
You need God's salvation as much as the Gentiles. That's why Jesus came to save us all. Our heritage can't save us. Our works can't save us. Only Jesus' cross can save us. Well, they didn't want to hear that. The truth that Jesus teaches isn't fitting their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be like, of what his kingdom should be like. Jesus doesn't fit into their mold. And so they find his words offensive, enough to run him off a cliff. It's no wonder that verse 58, going back to Matthew, it's no wonder that verse 58 adds, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's not that he lacked power. When Mark records this same incident, Mark chapter 6, verse 5, he says that Jesus did heal a few sick people. This also doesn't mean that Jesus never healed where faith isn't enough. Right? Matthew records several healings by Jesus that mention nothing about the faith of the individual. Just ask the dead girl. Rather, Jesus' miracles revealed the power and the presence of the kingdom. But he's not giving the kingdom to those who reject the king. He withholds the blessings of his kingdom from those who harden themselves against him. Now we can learn a couple of things from this first account with Jesus. For starters, how do you respond to Jesus when he doesn't fit your mold? How do you respond to Jesus when he doesn't fit your mold? All of us have assumptions that we bring to the table. And those assumptions come from a combination of your own upbringing, uh, the historical traditions that you're used to, uh, your cultural experience. Some of you have sinful preferences that differ from other people's sinful preferences. You have certain religious convictions. And then we meet Jesus. And often what happens is that we end up trying to force Jesus into a mold shaped by those underlying assumptions. Only to find he ain't moving. He's immovable. You must be conformed to his mold, his image, his truth. And at that point, what do you do? So on days when you know, you've been serving faithfully, starting to get a little old because you're not being recognized. You know, you, you want to be served for once? You want that pedestal? How do you respond when Jesus says, the last will be first in my kingdom? The greatest among you must be a slave of all. Or when all you want is just for things to go as you planned for once? For people to do things the way you want them done? For time to bend in your favor? How do you respond when Jesus says, Father, not my will, but yours be done? Or do not be anxious 
or when you want to take political control. We're going to change this nation for God. And how do you respond when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Put down your sword, Peter. Or when you're rich with the world's possessions. How did Jesus' words land? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you take offense at Jesus when he says things like this? It's not that we need more evidence. Right? If, if anybody had all the evidence they needed, it was these people. They grew up with Jesus. Right? They saw him. They heard him firsthand. They didn't need more evidence. They needed a changed heart. They needed a new heart. A new outlook, a new mold that's shaped by God's word. And that's what we need too. So have you, have you humbled yourself before this king and yielded to his lordship? Are you scandalized by him? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23 says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block. A scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. So stay amazed at Jesus. Even when his teaching cuts against the way you're not used to thinking, humble yourself and follow him. I think the other takeaway to notice here is how the kingdom may alienate you from, from even your closest friends and family. This account illustrates Jesus' words from chapter 10, verse 36. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, some of you may never have to experience your own family writing you off for following Jesus, but a lot of you will. Perhaps some of you have already lost close friends and family, whether that's due to you now share completely different values and completely different passions and joys, or due to their outright hatred for, Christian, for the Christian faith. Now, if that's you, you're in good company with Jesus. Treasuring the kingdom may cost us some of the dearest relationships we've experienced. Will you choose to stay with Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this all goes back to that treasure, right? Hidden in a field. What is the kingdom worth to you? is, Is it this precious, more more precious than than your earthly family members. Pray that God would so root your joy in the kingdom that when such choices come, you will still stick with Jesus. 
Pray that God would, would help you navigate the difficulties that come with close family and friends who are outside of Christ. And may the Lord be honored by our faithfulness and perhaps even use that faithfulness to draw them to faith in Christ. The next story is like the first. We see John the Baptist also speaking the truth of the kingdom and and that invites hostility. But this time it's from rulers in high places. Verse 1 mentions Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means he owns a fourth of the, the kingdom. He's kind of ruling that. He's different from Herod in chapter 2, verse 1. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, the same Herod that Jesus will will later face before his cross. So Herod hears these reports about Jesus and he draws this strange conclusion. This is John the Baptist, he says. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod used, used to be really interested in, in, uh, in John. Uh, Mark 6 tells us that Herod knew John to be a righteous and holy man. Uh, it also says that Herod was perplexed by John's teaching, but he was always glad to hear him. Likely then, Herod knew something of a theology of resurrection. And he seems a bit worried if John is, in fact, raised from the dead. You see, he hadn't done right. And that's what verse 3 explains. He kind of, Matthew explains here the backstory to Herod's remarks. And it's here that we finally learn why John was put in prison. You know, Matthew first mentioned this in chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, That was when Jesus first comes on the scene and he says, you know, after John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee there. And then we learned in chapter 11, verse 2, that John was at that point in prison, right? And he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus if, if he's the Messiah. But why was John in prison? Well, we finally get our answer here. Herod had seized John, it says, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, if you research Herod's family tree, it's a mess. But basically, both Herod and Herodias divorced their spouses that they could have each other. And John calls it like it is, And he says that doesn't square with God's word on marriage. Politically speaking, this doesn't look great for Herod because he's supposed to be the ruler of the Jews at the time. Mark says that Herodias, because of this, holds a grudge against John. And so they attempt to silence John by locking him up. Verse 5 says that at some point Herod even wanted to put John to death... But he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. So he likes John's preaching until it starts making things politically inconvenient. Yet he's also not willing to kill John because it's not politically convenient. (laughs) 
Right? He fears the people. So we see what Herod's about. He's about himself. He doesn't value the kingdom of heaven. He values his own reputation. And that shows up again in verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias... Now, this girl is between 14 and 18 years old. So, that tells you a little bit about the corruption of this family. Dancing this way before the party. So, we're talking grievous things. She danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, there's the fear of man and desiring to keep his reputation again. Because of his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Friends, this is where the fear of man will get you. The desire to look good before others, the desire to to save face, to, to protect your reputation no matter what, that will lead you to oppose God's kingdom. It will lead you to suppress God's truth and cancel and kill the messengers of God's kingdom. Isn't it sad that Herod knew John to be a holy man? That Herod sat before John's preaching and heard him say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John held out to Herod, the Christ, the Messiah, who was on his way. And yet Herod wanted his own glory more. Some of you may want to pursue a career in politics one day. I think this story here needs to be a warning for you. Teenagers, many of you will face this desire, this temptation to be popular. You want to be popular among your friends and well-known. Let this be a lesson for you. Let it be a lesson for all of us. The fear of others, the desire to stay popular, even when you know you've done wrong, it will set you against the kingdom of heaven itself. And that's a dangerous place to be. By contrast, John fears God. Did you notice the verb in verse 4? Because he had been saying to him. This wasn't John, hey, I want to talk to you about your marriage. Doesn't square with the Bible. Herod threatens him. He's like, all right, I'm done. He had been saying. He kept saying it to him. He kept holding up the true king's standard. So Herod's power doesn't cause John to waver in stating the truth. The Bible tells us to be subject to our governing authorities. It tells us to honor the emperor. But never are we to do these things at the expense of the truth. Our allegiance is to Jesus first. Why is this story here? I think one reason it's here is to show us 
that John is a blessed man. Jesus told him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And John may not have understood everything about Jesus. But what he did know about Jesus, he embraced it and he walked accordingly. In the end, he was blessed. The same is true for everyone not offended by Jesus. You may face great opposition. You might even lose your head. But the blessing will be yours. Wasn't it Revelation 14 that told us, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It is not the world who ends up getting rest at death. It is only the Christian, those who belong to Christ. Remember this when you face opposition for the sake of the kingdom. You are blessed. Another reason is here, I think, is to illustrate how union with Christ will include union in his sufferings. Look back at verse 1 and notice again what Herod says. Herod heard about the fame of Jesus and said, this is John. He heard about the fame of Jesus and said, this is John. Herod missed Jesus' identity, yes. But is this also Matthew's way of saying something more to us? Herod's opposition to John is really opposition to Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that both Jesus and John speak the truth. Both Jesus and John get arrested on dubious charges. Both Jesus and John come before Herod. Both Jesus and John are victims to unjust rulers protecting their reputation. Both Jesus and John are murdered. And both Jesus and John's disciples come and bury their bodies. In Matthew's Gospel. You have these intentional parallels that he's making. There are major differences, of course. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus' death alone atones for sin. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. But the similarities are meant for us to see an important connection between Jesus and John. Ultimately, this account with John anticipates the mounting hatred for Jesus. That's the same after uh, Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead. We see the same types of parallels in the lives of the disciples in the book of Acts. So that when you see their sufferings, you say, these guys are just like him. So if you're a Christian, have you embraced this reality? That treasuring the truth of the kingdom will invite hostility. Your union with Christ will mean that you're opposed even by some of your closest family members or from authorities on high. Part of growing as Jesus' disciple is preparing for this hostility. And one way we can do that is by listening to what Jesus has been saying about the kingdom of heaven. It is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great value. It's worth giving everything to have it. So step one in preparing for the hostility is treasuring Jesus above all. Treasuring Jesus above all. Isn't that what we observe also in the Apostle Paul? Right? Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. 
Paul knew that Jesus and faithfulness to Jesus is more precious than his own life in this world. And I think John the Baptist here, we see the same heart in him. In John chapter 3, verse 29, it was John the Baptist who said, This joy of mine is now complete. And he speaks in that context of him decreasing and Jesus increasing. For Paul, for John, for all true disciples, nothing compares to the, to the worth of knowing Jesus and finding your joy in making him known. So treasure Jesus above all. That's step one in preparing to suffer. We must also prepare by learning to fear God above man. Remember the reminders of chapter 10 in Jesus' teaching? Three times Jesus says to his disciples, do not fear, do not fear, and, and, and do not fear. And one of them was, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So do not fear Herod when he cuts off your head. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. John the Baptist feared God more than what Herod could do to him. The only way you will find boldness to keep speaking or to keep obeying is by rekindling your awe of God. And I think John the Baptist was doing this long before he got to this point. Don't start when you're in prison. Start well before that, kindling this awe of God, right? Chapter 3, verse 11, John says, The one coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So may the same awe be in us. Right? I was also reminded in reading this about the women from Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives. The midwives feared God and they did not do as Pharaoh told them in killing the children. It was their fear of God above Pharaoh that kept them faithful. John also believed the kingdom of heaven was coming. The kingdom of heaven was coming, so he has his hope in the coming kingdom. And this is another truth that can prepare us for suffering. In chapter 3, verse 2, John begins his ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In another place, he knows that he's fulfilling the role of Isaiah's forerunner to announce the coming of Yahweh. The rule of God would, would soon manifest itself on earth. The king was no longer just on the way. John was seeing him arrive in the person of Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 12, John needs some reassurance about this. He also needs a few things clarified by Jesus, but but in the end, he wasn't tied to his earthly possessions. We shouldn't be so naive as to think that even the good gifts of this present life cannot consume us. Some can become so attached to this world and the things in the world, even the good things in this world, that when the path of obedience, the pass, the p, get all kinds of tongue tied today. When the path of obedience calls them to let go of their possessions, they can't 
And so they don't stay faithful to Jesus. They're like the parable of the third soil, right? The cares and the riches of this life choke out the word. But John knew that a better kingdom was coming. He knew that the Messiah's kingdom was at hand, that it was near, that it was almost here within the grand sweep of God's plan. Herod's kingdom wasn't going to last forever. Soon Herod Herod would, would die just like his daddy died. But God's kingdom would last forever. Brothers and sisters, we have a greater assurance than John the Baptist himself had. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We are on this side of the cross. Not only is Jesus' kingdom coming, he has all authority in heaven and on earth already. Through death and resurrection, he secured the victory and defeated our greatest foes. Our citizenship is already in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That will prepare you to face hostility. I mean, you sang it earlier, right? Though nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one King who is reigning over all. We are singing these songs to help disciple each other in how to stay faithful in the face of opposition and hostility and suffering. So when we're singing, we're not just saying we're happy. We're saying we need this truth because the day is coming. We're having to hold on to it for dear life. These songs, these things we read in the service, the preaching you hear, it's all training you to endure the hostility. Treasuring Jesus, fearing God, hoping in the coming kingdom, things like this helped John stay faithful to the end. It's truths like these that will also prepare us to face opposition. Treasuring the truth of the kingdom will invite hostility. Are you ready? Pray that God would make us ready. Pray that God would work these truths into our lives such that we don't give up when the opposition comes. Whether it's our own family members or officials with great power, pray that God would find you and I faithful till the end. Obedience may cost us a great deal, but Jesus and his kingdom are worth every sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would give us the strength to endure these coming days. We don't know what's coming, uh, but you do. You reign over all, and should very difficult days meet us, uh, should opposition come from our closest family members or from governments, make us faithful to the end. Help us stand in awe of you. For you reign. The earth is yours and all that is in it. Your kingdom is forever.
Amen.